One in four Americans has no one to talk to, even in the worst emergency, so that people are atomized. And because being alone is not a human thing, they never found caves in which people were alone. We're not the strongest, we're not the swiftest, we don't have the best hearing, we don't have the best eyesight, but we can cooperate. And that's, uh, that's denied in a capitalist society. Welcome to Social Medicine On Air, a podcast where we explore the vibrant world of social medicine. We learn through conversations with healthcare practitioners, researchers, and activists who are working to create a more just and healthy world. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Social Medicine On Air, but it's a crossover episode today um, with It's Not Just In Your Head. So we are very excited to be joined by Max Golding and Harriet Fraud, uh, two of the uh, mental health professionals and co-hosts of this other kind of sibling podcast um, to ours. Uh, so w- welcome to you both. Thank you. We're really glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us, guys. Yeah. Maybe by way of introduction, could you guys tell us a little bit more about your own path to doing some of the work that you're doing? What is the goal of your podcast? I know it's about capitalism and mental health. Like, how, how did you find yourselves wrestling with some of those questions Well, I found myself wrestling with those questions because I'm old and I've been a radical and an activist since high school. And so that I'm very aware that the environment in which you live and your access to everything has a lot to do with your class position because children are born into a dictatorship and they are dependent on whoever got pregnant for their class position, for their opportunities, for their racial standing, for their schooling, for their neighborhood, for the very air they breathe, if they have to live next to an incinerator or if they can get good air, healthful food. And so that, and I see those all impinging on their mental and physical health. I can't avoid noticing that. Max? Yeah, for, for me, man, this is like a tough, like, a, I want to talk for like five hours about this. I guess so I'd say <laughs> my, 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 my story, my story is, um, let's see, um, in my mid, I'm 35 now and in my maybe mid 20s or so, um, I, I had the seed planted in my head that I wanted to become a therapist because it seemed like a more dignified way of, well, essentially making money, like having a job doing something that felt dignified compared to I was working for like this tech company writing fake reviews for video game companies and crap like that. And, um, but I wrestled for five-ish years with whether or not I should go to school to become a therapist because what Harriet just said and, and all the topics that we talk about in our podcast, which is that I felt conflicted about um, psychotherapy and the mental health field in general because it seems so individualistic and, and that it was essentially the message of it's kind of just in your head. And if you take, if you do deep breathing skills, you get a meditation practice going, or you do, you know, you correct your error thinking, then, you know, your problems are more manageable. And like, it is true, you can make your problems more manageable in that way. But when you zoom out and you look at the larger scale problems, and you can just, you know, like pick one, right? Like, is it climate change? Is it labor? Is it, is it tenant? You know, is it people getting mass evicted for profit by land? You know, pick, pick a damn thing. And like, therapy isn't fixing any of those things and so um i did i did wrestle for for many years like wondering am i am i going into something that actually conflicts with my own values and that is maybe almost colluding with the problem in a way like colluding with 
this idea that we're just sort of trying to put band-aids on individuals on a sinking ship kind of thing. So um, <clears throat> I had discovered um, Harriet's program um, maybe a year or so ago as part of the, it's called Capitalism Hits Home, uh, as part of Democracy at Work, uh, you know, worker co-op program, you know, Richard Wolf's kind of probably biggest kind of well-known guy happens to be, happens to be married to Harriet. Um, and so I, I'd found that, that there are more therapists uh, than I thought who are thinking about these things. Harriet's not the only one, I'm not the only one. Um, so there's some consciousness, but I, I do think that it's, um, it's not at full maturity. It's not at the level of maturity I'd like to see for like the therapy field to, to wake up, to understand like the, the mess we're in and figure out if there's a, I don't know, somehow shifting our roles to where we can play a bigger part in solving the bigger problem somehow. Right. Also, I think I was very influenced, although I was already a radical and already a therapist, I was very inspired and spurred on by Althusser, Louis Althusser, the French mm -hmm. philosopher, because his struggle for personal liberation was very much a concomitant of his struggle for political liberation. Because if you're too messed up, you can't function. And a lot mm -hmm. of people who have been hurt so badly can't fight the forces that hurt them. And I appreciate the parallel liberation struggles of personal and political liberation. And I wish that they were more recognized as the tracks on which to get ahead mm -hmm. side by side. Um, there's something that Max just mentioned. I would like you guys to build on that. Uh, you said like therapies can't fix them. You, you are talking about a lot of struggle. Um, like you're thinking like it's uh, like so many like, um, I don't know if it's depression, but an like emotional issue. And you say like therapy can't fix that. So you have to uh, look for the root cause of, of the issue. Um, so, but that make me think about many individualism, you know, because, because me, I, I'm come from a different culture. I can, I can contrast things. And one of the things that I see in the American culture, or one of the things I see in neoliberalism by itself is the promotion for individualism. So if something is messed up, it's just your fault. Um, if you have to uh, uh, be a, a self-made man, you have to uh, make it by yourself. So can you build on that on what, by when you say like, therapy cannot fix that, and then we should look for the root cause of, 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 of issues? Well, certainly mm -hmm. the United States both suffered and benefited from exceptionalism, if you were white and male or in a family led by a white male for 150 years between 1820 and the 1970s, each generation could do better than the one before. So you got a sense that you could make it if you really try, if you were in the majority and whites were the majority in 19, you know, in 1970s, the country was 85% white and extremely racist and chauvinist. But I think that we got a sense of exceptionalism. After World War II, we were the only economy that wasn't wrecked by the war. And so we got a sense of we being kings of the world. No one else produced anything but us. That gave people the idea that they could do it if they really try. And they excised the social and the political from their awareness. Class just returned in um, about 11 years ago with Occupy. 
that exceptionalism plus the McCarthyite crushing of the communists as traitors, the socialists as fellow travelers, and the CIO passionate unionists as highly suspect had a huge effect and was effective in the United States, unlike Europe, in which it was obvious if people were going to get ahead, they had to do so by struggling together. And that's an unfortunate aspect of our history, which encourages individualism, which is only now beginning to atrophy as 50 years later or so people are catching on, uh-uh, it didn't work. So I, I want to frame it too as like, so if you if you define depression, just as the, as the DSM defines it, and I don't, most of us don't have all the diagnoses memorized, but like the key features are like fatigue, self-blame, low motivation to achieve goals, like like loss of pleasure in in things that you normally you know, and, and you can you can like get a, a vibe from a dress, depressed person. Like you don't you don't even need to go through the checklist. Yeah. But the way that the DSM describes it is something in which um, if you if you think about the current social conditions of the U.S. during COVID or even pre-COVID, and you look at like wage stagnation and like rents going up and wages stagnating and everything, you know, everybody going into more debt. And, you know, now you need like a two, like two parents working full-time jobs just to afford a mortgage to have two kids or whatever. Like those are the kinds of conditions that would actually create what the checklist is with that the DSM calls major depressive disorder, right? Any, any thinking person would look at those conditions and say, you would yeah. probably feel really tired all the time. Like you'd experience fatigue you'd have low motivation. You wouldn't have the same amount of pleasure that you did in other things. You just go down the damn list. That's deep. And you, right. And you'd think like that causes that system is causing clinical depression. Right. Yeah. It's almost like it just depends on like what, where you're shining the light or like putting the microscope or whatever. And you, you can zoom in and look at the individual and you say, well, here's the check boxes in which we're defining clinical depression. And we could get into a whole existential thing of just like, it's almost a circularly defined thing. Like you define depression, you, you find it mapped into the individual and you say, oh, they meet the definition for, for, for the, the criteria mm -hmm. for depression. But if you're only looking at the individual, which, you know, like neoliberal capitalism, I think just the corporate, where all, all the, the forces around us really, I think, um, sometimes I feel like a conspiracy theorist saying this, but like they benefit more from individualism because it's a, you're breaking down a smaller, um, a smaller set of units to, from, with, from which to extract value if, if you're a capitalist, right? Like if the individual unit were like a neighborhood or like a city or something like that, you can extract less value. But if you keep breaking it down into individuals, you can like pull more stuff out of them from value. So it's, maybe that's a separate tangent. But the point being, yeah, like rates of depression are going up, but it, it isn't if we locate the disease, quote unquote, of depression within an individual, with an individual brain or whatever, individual human being, you're actually looking at the wrong thing. You know what I mean? Like we're seeing sign like like rising rates of severe depression in people is not a rising sign of like changing brain chemical, like some evolutionary trend that's happening where like brain chemicals are just going out of whack or something, right? It's like there's forces around us that are causing this phenomenon. And and it's felt by individuals, but it's not caused by individuals. So like what you were just saying, Jonas, like maybe maybe from I don't know what Haitian I don't know anything about Haitian culture, you know, but like how it's conceptualized differently elsewhere but yeah. like our, i just i think our framework is just totally like whack like it's stupid straight up um, well i think they did try to escape the social causes of misery by making it a chemical factor every single feeling that anyone I like that. has i like that good i'm glad <laughs>
everyone has any feeling you have, any experience that you have has a biochemical component. Yeah. So you can always point to that, but it's irrelevant and it doesn't need the medication. It needs a social change. Yes. And maybe if you're utterly dysfunctional a medication until you become functional, however, that's fake. You know, it, it's fake. Everyone has biochemical reactions as concomitants to life. Mm -hmm. And so pointing to a biochemical imbalance is a cop out on social responsibility. Yeah. Starting. And it, Go ahead, please. Well, it's, and it seems to like, you know, I think even the way that the DSM is formulated as it, it all is symptomatic on the level of the individual. And if that's true, then it says that there is no reason to look at larger social dysfunction or um, there's no reason that we would ever have to do a larger social analysis. But at the same time, we're seeing rising rates of depression, anxiety. I was talking with some friends the other day and it just feels like it, it's actually unsurprising when somebody has anxiety, depression, somebody's had suicidal ideation in the past. Like this feels very normal. Um, or body image issues. And so like, can you maybe explain or tease out the ways in which kind of our capitalist and especially neoliberal society um, encourages those different uh, mental dysfunctions? I certainly could do that. And we should begin by looking at how the Diagnostic Statistical Manual DSM was founded. It was sponsored by the drug companies. Joel Covell wrote about this very famous now deceased psychiatrist on the left. Uh, and they were, the DSM diagnoses were written to fit into medications. And so that medications could be sold. And, you know, Ritalin is a great case in point. It was already revealed as hyperactivity, ADHD was a fake diagnosis that was formulated and popularized to sell the drug Ritalin. And that was exposed. You could look it up on Google and see all the exposure. However, the companies had the advertising revenue so they can disguise all of that and push Ritalin, which is pushed in public schools across this country and psychiatrists office. Kids ought to move around. They ought to be a little jumpy. They have energy. It ought to be harnessed. They ought to be moving but they could be diagnosed as aberrant and sick and set in for Ritalin sales. So it's really quite ugly if you look at it. It's an ugly capitalist co connection that goes towards these things. Did that answer your question yeah. or was I answering something else? No, that is good. And I appreciate that. And I think that that historical work, looking at the way that these diagnoses have been shaped and the interests of drug companies and so on, and I'm also thinking at the same time, um, I know many, many peers and friends who have been helped um, immeasurably by psychoactive medication as well. Um, so it, yeah, I'm trying to think about the ways in which these can be used more for liberation. I mean, so have it, I. Like, I mean, I make criteria for like 50 things in the DSM, you know, depression is one. Um, I've been thinking of going back on, on Zoloft recently. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is, you know, it's, it's, it mm -hmm. probably seems like outlandish for a therapist to say this, like on some recording or whatever, but like, um, like this is just the reality we're living in. Like it, I think, so So to me, it's, um, I'm actually conflicted when I hear Harriet say these things because on the one hand, I agree with her 
especially in the in the history and the context and the sociopolitical and the policy based crap that um, the context in which the the mega kind of big pharma and psychotropic med world exists. Um, <clears throat> but I think the the my frustration with this concept in general is that like we are we're so deeply in capitalism at this point that it is really hard sometimes to figure out what thing to to work on like to try to fix or whatever and kind of like what harriet said earlier with like if someone is just in this state of total despair and destitution and stuff and they can't even reach like a fraction of a point of individual liberation how could you expect them to get involved in some like revolutionary yeah. utopian like okay here now we're going toward you know common whatever the, the the sort of commie dream is for those of us that are leftists and so um let, let's let's imagine there's someone that like is severely depressed they like won't go outside they won't brush their teeth they won't do any they're not talking to their family or friends anymore they're just kind of like they're, they're barely hanging on going to their job or whatever if you try to think in terms of interventions like what the hell is going to get this person out of this hole sometimes you look at all the different options and the system that we're in and the conditions we're under won't even let us even hint toward the toward non-medical interventions. And that's really shitty. Like, like for right. example, um, if they're so depressed that you just, you can't even, you can't help them find meaning and purpose to the point where they're like, you know what, I am going to get up. I'm going to brush my teeth. I'm going to go for a jog. I'm going to call my mom. I haven't talked to her in a while and X, Y, Z. Right. And like, you can't do it and nothing you're doing is working. <clears throat> and then suddenly somehow you get, you know, and you give them a pill or whatever, and they're actually able to just do 5% more, you know, mm -hmm. like, that's pretty cool. It is. Um, but it's, it's, you know, where do you start? So I think for some people it's like, okay, meds might give them the point where they can like consider fighting the system, you know? Yeah, um, it could. Also the recognition of another individual who's a therapist can change your mind because you're recognized finally and you're heard. And if there were more of a present ongoing movement, people could get connected to it in whatever way they can and also connected through the 12 step programs, which are the most popular mental health programs in the United States and are the most present in every little town there's an AA, no matter how small. And the 12 steps are, if you want to look at them the way they never would, are a communist program. It's from each according to its, his ability or her ability to each according to his or her needs. No money is exchanged. When people are committed to the program, they take an active role. People are sponsored and support, have a primary support system. And they heal through social bonds with others who suffer similarly. And in that way, they're very parallel to a movement, although they're very careful not to allow themselves to be socially committed because then they wouldn't have all that free church space and stuff. But um, they are a testimony to the power of social bonding as a way out and joining with others who also are afflicted and they could very well be a part of a movement and should be. I, I recently buy uh, a book. I haven't read it fully, but I began it. And then for some reason I didn't continue. And uh, it's, the book is called, Connect, uh, it's called Connection. 
Yeah, but yeah, yeah. So you know about this book. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's like what you are talking about, like the social bonds. And it seemed like you're just talking about that aspect of depression, the the biopsychosocial aspect of it, where we are so separated from each other. So we, that's, if we could get connected to work that are meaningful to us, to plays that are meaningful to us, to be, and be around people that mean, uh, that have meaning for us, we could start healing ourselves. And maybe we could not need more, uh, let's say, antidepressant, and mm. antidepressant. So I think like that's what I was thinking about. Like, for example, I can take my own experience. For me, living in Haiti, I never experienced depression. It's not I never get sad, but it seemed like mm -hmm. for me, living and growing up in Haiti, uh, even though it's a place with low resources, I never had a feeling that I know like things was hard, but it was hard for all of us. It, I went to school where everybody, everybody was first gen. Like from my from elementary school to high school, everybody was first gen. When I went to high school, when I went to university, I start seeing the difference, but it's when I move outside of Haiti, I see a huge difference. Right. Now I start questioning my self-worth. I, I start questioning my language, my accent, my culture. My, I start questioning everything because there's so many uh, deconnections of, of my reality and what I was seeing. And that's when I start feeling a little bit more uh, uh, like not feeling good, I will say, and then and then I, I at some point I, I I went to see psychiatrist too. So the reason I'm bringing that up is because not being in your own social environment is also a force to to make you feel sad and to depress you. But on top of that, not having access to resources to basic human rights, let's say education, good employment, good place to live, also are forces social forces that prevent you. To have access to health you see what i mean so i think all those issues we have to approach them even from an economic perspective from a cultural perspective but also trying to see oh we as society we create the social condition for people to feel anxious to be depressed and to have social ideation i was going to say that i what i'm hearing jonas is that the there's a level of like social cohesion where you came from, where people kind of, there's a, there's a sense of togetherness. Like even yes. if, even if maybe things aren't perfect in certain maybe socioeconomic ways, there's a, there's a sense of connectedness that people feel to each other. Yeah. It gives a sense of shared purpose, shared value, shared meaning. Right? Exactly. Exactly. It's like, um, for example, my mom, my mom was the mother for every, so as soon as you're a mother, you're a mother for every kids, every kids can call you mom. And I call everybody out. You see what I mean? So right, right. that I couldn't find it when I move. It's like people yeah. making me feel like you're foreign to us. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, that, I, go ahead. Yeah, well, I, I was, I was going to say that I think that like one of the, um, one of the many, well, I mean, if you think of just like the history of the U.S. generally, like, like think of like who, who was and wasn't able to have like social cohesion. Like I think, um, like Harriet brought up before, it's like they're, uh, so the history of the U.S. being essentially this sort of like imperial, colonial, genocidal, sort of like insane, like operation um, that evolved over time to like slaves freeing themselves, women getting the right to vote, and then just, you know, these insane, uh, 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 you know, the social revolutionary, like 1960s period and everything. There's just so many sort of splintered um, groups of people 
still to this day, like trying to fight for their rights. And there's still, I think, so much tension um, and with capitalism as the overarching economic system that is still trying to pit us all against each other. I think it's just extraordinarily hard in the US to find um, in most like neighborhoods you go into, you're just like, okay, where's the social cohesion, right? Well, that neighbor doesn't talk to that neighbor and those people are, you know, they're probably about to get evicted and they're getting gentrified out of the neighborhood. And, um, you know, the, the, those homeowners, because of the 2008, they can't even pay the mortgage anymore. And so they're leaving and now they feel like they've lost their sense of purpose because they don't have the same home that kids come back to from college, right? I mean, things are just, feel like ultimately crumbling in the U.S. Yeah, well, they are. They are because this is the decline of the American empire. There were two great empires that emerged after World War II. The Soviet Union collapsed out of its own corruption and we are following. However, we are part of the problem as in the the book um, that's called the spirit level is the more unequal you have a society, you you have these huge gaps between the haves and have nots and different people. And in the 1970s, the United States was the most egalitarian nation in the world. Now in the prosperous 30 prosperous countries in the OECD nations, we are now the least egalitarian among those nations. And so you have people, kids aren't seeing one another at school. People don't have a sense of social cohesion. They're segregated out. And the have nots are considered failures. They're what Hillary Clinton called the basket of deplorables. And Romney had a similar name previously, which is why he lost, that there is a sense that you're writing off the mass of people. And I think that was part of the rage of people who believed the lies of Donald Trump because he seemed to recognize their suffering even if he made it worse, he recognized them. And people are not recognized. They're not recognized in the importance of their labor. They're not recognized in their contribution. They're not recognized in their struggle to make a family decency and cohesion. And one in four Americans, which has been consistent since um, 2009, they repeatedly make these studies, one in four Americans has no one to talk to, even in the worst emergency, so that people are atomized. And part of the part of what I encourage my clients to do is join groups that believe in the same values they have, because being alone is not a human thing. I mean, they never found caves in which people were alone. We're not the strongest, we're not the swiftest, we don't have the best hearing, we don't have the best eyesight, but we can cooperate. And that's uh, that's denied in a capitalist society where it's yeah. every man for himself.
And Harriet, even with what you were mentioning earlier about Alcoholics Anonymous or the other permutations in that group, like the liberation for the individual who's dealing with addiction, I I mean, it is therapeutic in a sense, but it's not the traditional one-on-one therapeutic context, but it's it's rather a communal um, liberation on a small scale, certainly. But it's, it's to say that like we are in solidarity one with another and that because actually the ways in which we've been harmed is, is communal and social, the way that in which our healing is, is very communal and social as well. And there's individual elements of that healing. And that maybe comes through relationships that comes through drugs that comes through medication, meditation that comes through social change. Uh, but it strikes me that the value of solidarity is incredibly important. And like, that's what you lose in an unequal society. And that's what you get in those most popular programs in the United States and the most effective against addiction, which is a sense you are not alone. Your suffering is shared and you can join with others and lean on one another as a group. And I think that's a basic principle of any effective political organization, having that solidarity. And we have lost that in part because we have lost the concept of class, which is only returning. And race and gender were pushed by the CIA through their hundreds of thousands of dollars invested in the great Wurlitzer operation of the early 70s to have Gloria Steinem, the CIA agent, to push the gender-only narrative that a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. And the civil rights movements being converted converted to the um, black power movement and denying this class solidarity that was starting to emerge. And we do have to remember that Martin Luther King was shot when he was talking about black and white together for class transformation. And so was Malcolm X. We need each other for liberation. Yes, we do. All of us of every color and every gender and every ethnicity and every race. You know, so, uh, so the other thing is, I think just to name the, the difficulty of where we're at again too, and then maybe go toward like some hopefulness is that um, the, the way that jobs were outsourced and automated and everything over the last 40 years also, I think built into the economy and to the culture and, and I think with the real estate industry, the way it's been going over the last few decades, is it a sense of like place-based solidarity that once was easier for people to find no matter what their background was, where you could stay in a job or in a neighborhood or in a household or whatever for a relatively long period of time, like mm-hmm. not just one or two years, like not just five years, like decades, right? And like raise a family, your family gets to know other families in a neighborhood or whatever. Um, I mean, that mm-hmm. is like almost... I don't want to say entirely gone, but like that's so much harder to find. Like if you just think of your life and people, you know, have they actually been in the same place, like in the same job or in the same like neighborhood for a long time? Answer is probably no. And like most listeners thinking of this right now, think of like, where are you right now? Were you in the same place five years ago, 10 years ago? If the answer is yes to those questions, you're probably just really lucky at this. Um, like it's, it's really, it's really rare. And so I also want to say that so the, cha- the challenge too, and I think this also contributes to things like depression and PTSD symptoms and everything. And I don't know, the construction of like total full-blown personality disorders as like you get crazy disrupted attachment relationships with your parents from when all the jobs went to shit and all the housing went to shit for the next few decades, right? 
get all these like borderline narcissist, antisocial, whatever terms you want to use. Um, so to me, like I've been obsessing over this over the last um, couple of years. And it's like, well, where do you, okay, where do you start then? If, if the level of precarity is that bad, you know, I, there is definitely reemergence of the left, but like, you know, I try to think from like an organizer, like an organizer hat a lot these days. And it's like, okay, so the vast majority is probably like workers and tenants essentially, right? Like workers and workplaces, tenants and apart, big apartment buildings. Okay. All right, let's do that. Let's start with that, right? Let's build enormously strong, unbreakable bonds with those folks. But then the next, the next difficulty, we'll go back to the hope is, well, how the hell do you do that, right? I mean, if you, you know, you guys, whether you're in re residency or school or whatever, it's like, how do you talk to coworkers or like tenants in your building or people in your residency programs with the goal, not just of building relationships, but of like organizing, right? And like that, that is tremendously difficult. But I, the, the hopeful note I'll end on is that I do think with the re-emergence re, re of um, a left that isn't as strong as it needs to be, but it's going to keep growing, is that I think that those, that mentality and the methods and the approaches and the, um, the practices that are needed to build that kind of solidarity, that's not just social bonds, but it's like we're actually, um, we're fighting for each other. And there's sort of a, a common enemy also, you know, mm -hmm. uh, which is the capitalist system. Um, I think it's possible. It's just going to take a lot of work um, and reorienting ourselves and thinking about the relationships we have in a place-based way um, and trying to cultivate the non-place-based relationships as well, which I, I think is harder. But um, the fact that we're doing that, you know, we're on Zoom, like four people in like different time zones and stuff is, you know, like we're building relationships right now too. So that's pretty cool. We are. And also we have to understand that part of what, Americans don't understand and are beginning to is the reason for a lot of our precarity is we didn't have a powerful labor movement. In Germany, you can't just outsource. All over Scandinavia, you can't. You have to, and if you get any government money to stay in business, you have to have people from the neighborhood looking at the ecological effects of what you're doing. You have to have union representatives. And that's why they don't suffer as much Germany has the strongest economy in Europe, mm -hmm. that Americans, once they crushed the CIO through anti-communism and kicking out all the communists and socialists and militants in the 50s, it became a, you know, a much weaker establishment force because what won the New Deal was a combination of the labor unions, the Communist Party, and the two socialist parties that had people marching in the streets for jobs, hundreds of thousands of them, and killing judges who um, condemned family farms, hanging them. It, it was a very militant period, which we don't read about in our, high, in our history books, the Iowa militias and things like that, because they're class struggle. But I think Americans have to learn again that our, our hope here against precarity and atomization is solidarity in unions, in political organizations, in social organizations. And all of them atrophied, you know, that's, there's that book called Bowling Alone, which states, and it's then been re-researched, that there are fewer Americans in any organization as of 2009, and then again, it was repeated at 2016, then we're in bowling leagues alone in the United States in the 1960s and 70s. 
And those connections are sustaining. And so that I think one of the things that's happening is the labor movement is gearing up again and it's militant members like Sarah Nelson of the um, flight attendants union are calling for, a, were calling for a general strike if Trump didn't step down and are pushing solidarity, the nurses doing the same thing and political organizations are forming. And I think that will be an enormous help to the kind of isolation, anxiety and despair that so many Americans are experiencing. And if they need medication to be able to get up in the morning, of course they should have it, but not as a way of life, as a way of getting out of bed, it's different. Yeah, it strikes me too, um, just the the importance of connection and the importance of organizing. And I was lucky enough to take a class this fall with Reverend William Barber and the Moral Majorities Movement, Moral Mondays Movement, and kind of the, the Moral Fusion Organizing, Poor People's Campaign, and kind of seeing that multiple nexus of class and gender and ecology and the war economy and like bringing all these conversations together. And the world that I come out of is more in the religious community organizing um, than on labor organizing or something. But even even in medicine, which is, or um, the healing professions broadly, I think like nurses have been a huge inspiration and have really um, blazed a path in that way. I also wanted to ask maybe for you, Harriet, since you've had a number of years seeing folks come through your clinic, how do you think that people have been changing? Like what are the issues that people are presenting with today and how is that different than an earlier period? Well, in earlier periods, mostly they came because either they were in a bad relationship or they wanted to get into a relationship. So it was around intimate relationships, except where I was a family therapist, then it was around in a clinic. And it was around usually a child acting out the problems around him. And now I think existential despair is much more common because particularly under Trump, it was such a cruel, we had such a cruel environment and such a class stratified society and people felt helpless against this tyrannical demagogue. And I think that now that Trump is defeated, even though we don't have a socialistic alternative, the possibility of change emerges and people are heartened by it. And that will lighten people's spirits because the environment of a nation is hugely important. After World War II, kids in public schools like I did in PS 81, you know, we learned songs affirming the UN and a world without hate. And there was an environment, it was the last just war America fought. And there was a sense that we're on the right side of the the left side. And that there was a kind of unity around justice and World War II, which gave hope to kids, even kids with awful parents, because it was a hopeful world you were going into. And then starting in the 
mid to late 70s, the doors of opportunity that had been opened by the fact that the US was the only surviving economy and there was a flourishing left started closing on people's fingers and they didn't adjust well. And the United States became a force of capitalist exploitation in the world and not an anti-fascist force. And that I'm not sure, I haven't worked out the details of how that affected people, that sense of hope in the air, that sense of possibility, which we had as kids because we were in a hopeful, much more egalitarian anti-fascist America than we are now. And that is beginning to change. And I think it, it will help people. And it's ironic, I, I haven't figured out the socio-psychophysiology of this. Americans don't grow as tall as they used to. They're now people that are getting shorter and they're dying sooner. The taller people are in the Netherlands and Scandinavia where they are in the most egalitarian and hopeful societies. And that's very interesting. It even affects how much you grow. And it's not only because some kids get proper nutrition and healthy food and clean air and clean water and others don't, that's a big factor, but it's also a sense of possibility and a sense of connection with the future and with other people that allows people to prosper. Anyway, I do think that this is a more hopeful period and that's part of the reason that bands were playing, brass bands were playing all over Manhattan. People were dancing in the streets. They were flooding um, downtown and 42nd Street as if it were New Year's Eve because they saw hope. And hopefully there'll be class transformation behind that hope so that another despot won't be able to exploit it as a demagogue and gain ascendancy. You know, we have, we have a, a proverb in French that say, um, l'espoir fait vivre, um, hope makes you live. Uh, but my favorite singer who, who happened to be um, French, Senegalese, uh, Congolese, he, he bring that to another level on a punchline. He said, I don't know if hope makes me live, but I know it's prevent me from dying. Yes. You know, it's, 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 you sort of mean, so, so sometimes, you know, what, what is happening right now in our current situation or what is always happening with people, whenever there is hope, you know, you have that sense of tomorrow can be better. Okay. That's right. So, so sometimes when hope is not enough strong to, to make you live, but it at least it prevents you from dying. Yes. And, 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 <laughs> you oh, that's me. very important because the suicide hotlines have gone up over a thousand percent during President Trump's presidency, where people feel there's nothing to live for yeah. because the hope of a just society is too elusive. Mm. And that's a wonderful proverb. Hope lets you live. It also lets you grow. Yeah. Those societies that are hopeful get taller people. I like that. I like that. I was speaking with uh, with uh, one of the doctor. He's he's my he's my um, my astrid program director. Uh, was assigned to me, so he was checking on me, and I was trying to explain to him. Hope means a lot of a lot of things to me. It's like for me, me as Jonas Atlas, 
genus activist, whenever, uh, wherever I am, I want to make sure that I bring hope there, you know, uh, as someone who grew up in Haiti, as someone who survived an earthquake, as someone who, 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 who has been a refugee. So it's, it's, for me, it's extremely important to bring hope with me because at least I know um, whenever I cannot anymore, because I keep hope alive, hope will keep me alive too. Yes, and I think that one of the reasons in my long experience, I've been doing this job for 46 years as a therapist, is that I wouldn't work with somebody unless I felt the hook between us that I knew they would get better. So that I believed in them and I knew they would get better. And I wouldn't see somebody who I didn't know would get better. Because that's one of the things we give to our clients, an ally in hope. Do you feel that way, Max? I do, yeah. Um, Well, you know, I actually have hope in the, um, so there's different therapeutic orientations, like we call it like the client-centered or like the Rogerian from Carl Rogers days, is like existential, there's all these, you know, the new, all the newer ones are like behavioral for the most part. but I actually think if you have a more client-centered or existential approach to just assuming there, there is, there's something within, this is actually a good organizing perspective too, from what I've learned from labor organizers, is just assuming that ordinary people have power, have intelligence, have courage, have abilities, and there might be all kinds of obstacles, or they might, you know, they, I don't know, you could have a brain injury, you could have, there could be things going on with them, but there's some kernel of, of like light and, and just strengths within them. And if you meet people where they're at, looking for those things in the very beginning and you try to hook like you're saying harriet there's a there's a relational hook like well, yeah. do, we, do we feel in this sort of dyadic experience do i feel as like the professional whatever that that there's hope for you but within this relationship can we can we sort of co-cultivate that in in within the relationship and whatever happens um i tend to with most people feel that um giving it an effort at least for a little while just based on the relationship, not like fancy tricks or, or skills, mm-hmm. coping skills I can teach people and stuff like that. I've actually found over the years to, those things to be um, far less effective um, as much as the behavioral zeitgeist in, in recent decades has said, you know, teach people like deep breathing techniques and teach people, you know, like all the CBT stuff, like cognitive behavioral therapy stuff, like correct the error thinking and all that. Um, I actually, I believe in that far, far less now. Um, like my generation, there's a, we're segueing now, but like my generation of um, of trained psychotherapists is we are we are now like pretty heavily into the the zeitgeist now is the cognitive behavioral era. Like we're in the era where it's like change your thoughts, regulate your emotions, change your behaviors, and then basically you know that's what therapy is for the most part. The older stuff that's existential, psychodynamic, all that stuff is like kind of like underground now. It's like not as popular. Um, <clears throat> but I am thinking that the current zeitgeist has been manufactured essentially by insurance companies and by the behavioral systems that be, mm-hmm. and that they're actually far less effective long-term. So I guess anyway, to bring mm-hmm. back to earth, um, but I think like just connecting with somebody in a heart level, looking for their strengths, teasing those strengths out um, and just playing the role of uh, just, just being a really good listener to people and, and sh- ha- helping them feel seen and feel purposeful and meaningful, like in their, in their body, like in that relationship, we're like, oh, this person kind of gets me. That there's a certain medicine that that provides where people just sort of mm-hmm. can walk away 
and little by little giving that little dose every week um it just just gets them to a point where they can believe in themselves they can find hope and where really they don't really need you because i i really i couldn't agree more because i think what you give as a therapist is a set of tools in self-recognition and recognition of other people and your connection because if you are in a relationship you affirm and recognize and appreciate the existence of the other person not just as somebody to make money off yeah. but somebody who's a human being of value and i think that well i'll give you my theory which i don't publish these in psych journals or anything but that there are two kinds of survival there's physical survival economic physical survival and their psychological survival and i found over the years that my clients value psychological survival over physical survival every time even if they're actually um, taking unnecessary risks but that that recognition of the other human and the validity of their feelings and thoughts and belief in them is transformative and hypnosis because i'm a hypnotherapist the hypnosis that i do is based on the fact that you know so much more than you ever know you know and you can find what you need with support and appreciation and i think people haven't been given that recognition they're not given it in their authoritarian families they're not given it in their authoritarian churches or temples or their authoritarian schools instead they've been given what althusser called the lessons of dominance and submission they've been given the lesson of submission and self erasure and what we can do in our recognition and developing that relationship is stop that erasure and bring out the colors underneath the erasure and that's huge and i think right. you can do that in the way you talk i in fact i think part of trump's hold on people whose physical survival he was erasing was that he talked about the the swamp and the exploited little person little guy of course he talked about and we need to recognize that too yeah that's right i was just um this is going to expose me as a divinity student but we were reading in class recently and we were reading some texts from St Augustine in the 4th century who was writing actually at a very similar moment at the downfall of the Roman Empire and and he was writing and he's got this whole book that's called the city of god and and the whole point of that book is to contrast what he called the city of man versus the city of god and like the city of man is the city of domination and it's the city of the libido dominandi like the desire to dominate the other the desire for the will to power and like the city of god on the other hand was like the city which is characterized by love and justice and fraternity among all people and it's like that that is the that is, that is like what is the world that we want to be pursuing is it the is it the world of hope and injustice and love or is it the one where we do, where we dominate one another in which we are splintered and atomized and fragmented and i i think that you know i've had 
uh, better and worse therapists myself, but the ones, just to your point that you guys have been saying, like the ones that have felt most healing for me have been those where I truly feel seen. And like there is that kind of like human to human, soul to soul connection that happens that feels like magic somehow. And like that brings you back to yourself and that brings you back to other people. And then eventually, hopefully you won't need that therapy relationship long term. Um, but it's kind of like bringing... Yeah, bringing you back to community and bringing you back to the relationships which are sustaining. But I think what's interesting too, and one thing that I've felt in my own medical training, is like there's a lot of focus on, you know, how does the kidney work? How, what is the anatomy? Or maybe for you guys, it's like, how do you learn the behavioral interventions and so on? Um, but there's a lot of inner personal work or like spiritual work or soul work that, need, that, that accompanies kind of the role of the healer. And that, like, because you you and your very personhood are kind of like a tool, especially as a therapist, I think, but also in medicine, of course. But, like, how do you think about cultivating that side of yourself? And, like, how does that relate to your practice with your patients? That's really important. Um, yeah. You know, my father was a pediatrician, and he used to say that the hardest thing, he was a professor of pediatrics, was to te teach the young pediatricians this is not a disease, this is a child. You were a child, and this is a child. Look at this child. And that idea of seeing the other human being as a full human is crucial in our work and in medical work of all kinds, so that you don't see the disease, you see the human. And that's kind of a summary remark, just because I have to go soon, but it is anyhow. Max, what do you seek? Um, I mean, I so I'm hearing the question almost as what it's not like what do you do for self-care? Like for some reason I'm kind of hearing that from Brendan. Like of um, so if we think of ourselves as a, a kind of tool, um, there's a there's a kind of self-calibration you have to do to calibrate yourself to clients so that they you can facilitate healing. Um, and so sometimes I'm feeling like I'm I'm rushing into a session and I'm not calibrated into the most I'm not the, you know, the greatest healer in town and, and whatever, but I, cause I think that the more centered and grounded and sort of uh, that soul work you're talking about, Brendan, the, the better you are with that in the position that Harry, Harry and I are in, the more I think that exude, like people get a felt sense of that, that there's a, mm. there's a, a centeredness and a calmness and stuff like that. And, and, and the presence is felt um, better. And um, so I've just, I've been like overworked with this. I'm, I'm over-involved when I talk about organizing, like I'm actually like doing organizing a lot. And I actually think it's sort of, it's having a somewhat negative impact on me. But I think that like in the moment, something that is cool over the years, I've only been doing this like five, six years now um, compared to Harriet, but that in the moment, I think for me, it's becoming easier and easier to calibrate myself pretty quickly to just like, I'm attuned to this human that needs, that needs attunement, you know? Um, and I, like I said earlier, of just, I'm looking, there's almost like, like this laser pointer in my mind that's looking for their suffering, their strengths, their needs for validation and something to connect with them on. And I can just sort of, sort of click into it pretty, pretty easily these days. Um, and I think it does the trick, but, um, but I, but I just, yeah, just to be real, it's like everything, the world crumbling around this also, also affects me, you know, whether, whether or not we try to market ourselves as being very, you know, we're these magical, whatever people. <laughs> yeah, we're still I, I people. This is Social Medicine On Air. 
co-hosted by Brendan Johnson and Jonas Atlas. Produced by Brendan Johnson and myself, Raghav Goyal. Intro music credits to Savage on YouTube and outro and incidental music to Smith the Mister. And a huge thanks to Clara Brand for our logo and visual work. You can find her on Instagram at underscore off underscore brand underscore. If you would like to share your story on the podcast or have any questions at all, please reach out to us at socialmedicineonair at gmail.com or at Twitter at socialmedonair. And if you haven't already, please do subscribe, join our social media, and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It would mean so much to us. Thank you so much for listening.